black cats and goblins and broomsticks and ghosts. Covens of witches and all of their hosts. You may think they scare me. You're probably right. Black cats and goblins on Halloween night. Trick or treat. Hey guys and ghouls, I'm Katie Toole. And I'm Sean Reedy. And this is Friday Night Frights. A podcast about peace, joy, and screaming babysitters. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. Tonight is the day before Halloween. Here, we call it Devil's Night. I know you might call it Mischief Night, or if you're outside of the U.S., you probably just call it October 30th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. More, Which it. is va- fair and valid, and more power to you. Uh, tonight, apparently, okay, so this I just learned, Sean. The last Friday of October mm-hmm. is Frankenstein Friday. I'm on board. So am I. I don't know exactly what it entails. I think you're just supposed to sort of like honor and acknowledge Frankenstein. I love you, Frankenstein, and I wish I could give you a flower. Aww. Don't throw me in the river. Please. Also, I feel like on this Frankenstein Friday, we should take this opportunity to remind everyone that the genres of both horror and science fiction were effectively invented by a 19-year-old girl. Yeah, it sure Mm, shit was, wasn't it? Just saying. As it should have been. Uh (laughs) So tonight we're talking about Halloween, of course. I I think that we, although it was tempting to talk about something Frankenstein-y, but we have to talk about Halloween. I mean, because what else do you talk about on Halloween, but... Halloween. Halloween. Or the night before Halloween. But still, maybe you're listening to this on Halloween. Maybe you didn't get around to it yesterday. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Hello and welcome. I'm glad that we are celebrating with you on this All Hallows Eve. On this All Hallows Eve. Or Devil's Night. Whichever time. Or maybe you're listening to this in February. And if that's the case, then happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) I love you, my sweet baby angels. (laughs) (laughs) Is that phrase trademark or are we allowed to say that? <laughs> I don't know. I've said it for a really long time, I feel like. No, it's fine. I don't think you can trademark that. I don't think you can either. I don't think that I don't I don't think they're gonna I don't think they're ever going to hear it. So I don't think we're gonna get in trouble for it. That's also fair. Mm-hmm. And if they do, then hello. Hi. We love you. We love you so much. <laughs> so we all know what time it is. It's Shocktail Hour. <laughs> we just made that up on the spot. We really did. Was, uh, I think that sounded good. I mean, was, we had to listen to it back, but I mean, um, <laughs> in case you couldn't tell how in sync we are, how in sync we are, or that we've been drinking. Tonight's shock tale is the Boogeyman. Ooh, Ooh. Sean, what's in the Boogeyman? So, in the Boogeyman, you have an ounce of bourbon. An ounce of amaretto, one cup of apple cider, an ounce of pomegranate juice, a few dashes of orange bitters, and then it's served hot with a cinnamon stick. Friends, this drink is so good. It is delicious. I mean, it has cleared my skin. My crops are flourishing. <laughs> what? Have you never seen that meme? I have not. <laughs> I'm like, what does this have to do with clearing your skin? I mean, there's apple cider. Apple cider vinegar is good for your skin in certain products. Sean works in healthcare. I, in skincare. I, <laughs> he doesn't work in healthcare. Don't put that on me. Right? I am here for the health of your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and for your booze. And for your booze. Let's talk about 1978. Let's. Jimmy Carter's the president. The entire country is facing something called stagflation, which I was disappointed to learn is not a sex thing. That, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Sounds like it'd be fun. I mean, you can make it one. I mean, you absolutely could. It's really, it's much less fun, though, in real life. So, what is stagflation? Okay, so stagflation <laughs> is a combination of slow economic growth mm-hmm. and high inflation. Mm. And this happened for basically the entire 70s. Mm-hmm. The, in seven, the 70s were a little bit 
of an economic shit show, if you will. Okay. Uh, there were several recessions throughout the decade, right? There was the oil crisis, right, which shot gas prices, you know, relative to inflation higher than they have ever been. Mm-hmm. There were gas shortages, right? You'll see photos of cars lined up for a mile next to the one gas station that had any gas in it, right? Like in the town. Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was bad news bears. 1978 was also the year that Ted Bundy was captured for the third and final time. Because as I'm sure we all know, yes. he escaped from jail twice. They yep. let that man walk out twice. Which we will come back around to later. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that by the end of the 1970s, the sort of idealistic um, rah-rah attitude of the immediate post-war period had really worn off, right? In between the social and political turmoil of the 60s, the assassinations of Kennedy and the other Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers, right? Just inspirational public figures being shot down left, right, and sideways, right? Um, The economic downturn. And then just a general feeling that the America that was promised during, like, the Eisenhower years wasn't really manifesting the way it was supposed to. So by the end of the 70s, everyone was pretty cynical. Uh, Or they were on drugs. Or both. I was going to say or both. Or both. There was a very high likelihood that it was both. Both, right. That one sort of begets the other. Mm -hmm. So this is the world into which Halloween is born, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Some other fun facts about the 70, about 1978. Uh, some combination of the Gibb brothers held five of the top 10 spots on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart at the end of the year. That is not a joke. Either Andy Gibb or the Bee Gees had five of the top 10 singles of 1978. So choices were made. Choices were made. <laughs> I mean, dances were fucking danced. Let's be real. They were jamming. Uh, uh. But <laughs> be sad I, that you couldn't see what I just did. I was just going to say that. I wish you could have seen the moves <laughs> that Katie just put on me. Because. <laughs> and the number one movie of 1978 was Greece. Because after all, it was the word. However, do you want to know what number seven was? A movie I like more than Grease. Well, I mean, how much do you like Grease? That's a pretty subjective question. Sure. That's fair. It's actually a really great movie. Sorry. <laughs> that wasn't, wow. <laughs> I love Grease. Yeah. It is the word. Have you heard? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to shit talk Grease. I actually really love it. Grease no 2, one... we can have talk as a different situation. Listen, Grease 2 is a beautiful thing. And I will argue that that is the hill I will fucking die <laughs> <on>. <laughs> Is it objectively a terrible film? Yes. Is it a hell of a good time? Absolutely. I will die on that hill. Also, Michelle Pfeiffer in that movie. Come on. She might have been very important to a little, like, baby gaming. Um, So what was the number seven movie of that year? Halloween. Hmm. Despite the fact that Halloween was released in late October... It still broke into the top 10 highest grossing films of 1978 because that is how much that this movie exploded. I mean, this movie was a phenomenon. It was a phenomenon. I mean, it is a phenomenon. It is a phenomenon. I mean, we we have a resurgence of it literally 40 years later. Right. I mean, it's still relevant, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, not something you can say for a lot of films, especially horror films. <laughs> yeah, especially horror films. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it grossed $70 million. And this was a really, it was a relatively low budget film. It was an incredibly low budget film. Even for the time, it was a low budget film. 
I believe it was 300,000. And the thing is that 300,000, even in 1978, was a ridiculously low budget. Yeah. Because it was essentially not made, because it was made by an independent studio. Yes. Which at the time was not entirely a thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, yes, the golden age era, what? Of the, no, the golden age of the studio era, there we go, had passed by 1978 for sure. Oh, absolutely. But the big studios still dominated, Mm -hmm. right? For example, I believe that Paramount made Grease. Don't quote me on that. But I do think that Paramount made Grease. And I feel like I feel like many people have heard the stories about what the low, low budget for this movie meant for the production, right? There are stories about how uh well they filmed it in, in they filmed it in twenty days, right? Um they had to reuse their fall leaves because they actually did it in May in Los Angeles, so they're aren't fall leaves anywhere <laughs> they're sure as shit are not so they had to like sweep up the leaves that they scattered around and reuse them because they could not afford to go get more leaves can we just also like because i know that you mentioned that they did actually film it in los angeles mm-hmm. which um i they picked a great little town to film that in considering it was in california because it actually does look like a um Oh, it um, screams Midwest. Yeah, it, for sure. like 100%. It looks like mm-hmm. a little Midwestern town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, like, like I know the whole purpose, like, there was a specific desire to have this in a small Midwestern town. Deborah Hill. Yes. One of the, um, the one of the two writers, of course, of mm-hmm. Halloween, mm-hmm. Um, grew up in a small mis- Midwestern town. And not only that, but she grew up in a town of the same name. Yes. I'm glad that you brought her up because people do not bring her up enough. Like, no, they do not. If you did not know this, dear listener, Halloween, one of the best horror films of all time, was co-written by a woman. Her Show name is Deborah Hill. They were originally a couple during the time of filming. Yes, I believe that when they wrote this, they were a couple. Um, their professional relationship lasted longer than their personal than their romantic relationship. They right. remained friends, and and they did work together on several of his his mm-hmm. movies. His meaning, we're talking about John Carpenter, of course. Right. Of course, horror legend. Horror legend. Fellow horror legend. Yes, a tour, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but because of the tiny budget, there also wasn't a ton of marketing that they were able to do for this movie, right? It was almost entirely word of mouth. <laughs> I read one article, I think it was in Vulture. So I read an article that described it as an urban legend, right? That people would go see it and then they would go tell all of their friends, oh my God, you have to go see this movie. It's so scary. There were theaters that were making people sign waivers in case they fainted during the movie because it was so scary, right? Like it was all that kind of like grassroots marketing Mm -hmm. that propelled this $300,000 movie to a 70 million box office, which is insane. And that 70 million, remember, is $1978. I believe that that would be about $160 million today, if I remember correctly. And into the top 10, 1978, Mm -hmm. right? So. Well, and like, of course, I mean, it's still bringing in money today. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and spawned 11 sequels. Right. So And a remake. Well, and even, a remake of the sequel. And, and a remake of the sequel. Or a sequel to the remake. A sequel to the... You know what? Six and one half dozen the other. In for a penny, in for a pound. Other <laughs> sayings. You, I feel like it, as someone that is listening to this podcast and is probably also obsessed with horror, you know what we're saying. You know what we're talking about. You've seen the series. You've seen them all. You know what they like to do with this. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, because you said that they brought in seven million. Seventy. Seventy. Right. Um, it was, it did absolutely make John Carpenter's career. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, he had made a couple of films before this. He mm-hmm. did make Assault on Precinct 13 before this, which sort of became like a cult classic. But there was nothing even close uh-uh. to the success of Halloween. Nor anything that has even close to the same legacy as Halloween. Oh yeah, because Assault on Precinct 13 was, came out two years before this. Mm-hmm. That's actually one of the reasons that Erwin Yablons, which I really hope I'm saying that correctly, and I 
am very sorry if I'm saying Yablans wrong. Yablans? It's Y-A-B-L-A-N-S. Doesn't that sound like it should be Yablans? Yeah, it sounds right. Sure. If it's not, then... Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> Give us the tea on that. Um, anyway, that's one of the reasons that uh, Yablans asked him to do it. Because he had seen Assault on Precinct 13 and he liked it. Right? Because he actually was the one that... I'm sorry. Erwin Yablans is the executive producer of Halloween. Um, he was the one who came up with the very base idea of babysitters being stalked by a psychotic killer on Halloween night. The original working title of the film actually was The Babysitter Murders. Uh, Halloween just has a better... I mean, it's just like... Here it is. Boom. Yeah. Where does it? When does it take place? Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> well, so it's funny because to me, it's, it's a little bit... We were talking about... Frankenstein Friday earlier right. in Mary Shelley. The story behind like how Erwin Yablons came up with this mm-hmm. feels a little bit like the story about Mary Shelley coming up with Frankenstein, right? Where it was just sort of like this burst of inspiration. And it, it feels a little bit like it's maybe a mythologized a little bit, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, he says that it was on, he was on a plane and he had the idea for a movie about babysitters being stalked by a psychotic killer. Mm-hmm. And that the day that he was on this plane just happened to be Halloween. And he was like, why isn't there a horror movie called Halloween? Let's let's fix that let's problem. Let's make one. <laughs> um, so it feels a little bit like he, he may have embellished like how much of a eureka moment that was. But like, it's more fun to think of it as a eureka moment. So he brought on John Carpenter. Uh, John Carpenter got $10,000 to make Halloween. That well, was his that was his salary. That should sure shit didn't happen. <laughs> uh who of course brought on Deborah Hill uh to help write it with him. And then he directed it. He also scored it. It was shot in twenty days in May of nineteen seventy eight. And there was a mad scramble to get it finished and out by Halloween, much like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. I mean, it's not wrong. This is 100%. This is... Accurate. Is accurate description of the uh, situation at hand. Um, I also really find it funny. I don't know if it's a thing that uh, happens in other film genres, mm-hmm. but I've heard it happen multiple times. Um, I'm going to just reference one other movie that i know has happened it's, it's, it's happened to um but I like think that's well within the rules it's i mean and we're it, making the rules so we're making the, the rules who the fuck cares it's our podcast um but the exact same thing happened for like writing the soundtrack to mm-hmm. halloween as mm-hmm. it did with um it follows right they wrote the soundtrack i know that uh I just forgot the name of the director of, of It Follows. We're gonna... It Follows, which we will, of course, have an episode about at some point. Oh, absolutely, because it is a great film. Um, but uh, David Robert Mitchell, um, uh, actually local filmmaker, um, to us, to a degree. <laughs> to us. To us. Um, us as in... We're in southeastern Michigan. Yes. Just in case you're ever confused about where the fuck... Because we talk about where we are a lot without actually saying where it is. So yeah, we live so. in southeastern Michigan. Yes. We are in the Metro Detroit area. But no, David Robert Mitchell, like I know that he was trying to write a score with Disasterpiece, mm-hmm. um, who I know he writes scores for video games. Right. Um, And he wrote that score again, like very, very quickly. I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly how long it took, but it was like just before the film was premiering. Mm-hmm. He finished that score. And I love that soundtrack. It's and a it's, great score. It's a great, it's like, in a way, kind of similar to Halloween in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's effective in its simplicity. Right. I feel like that might be a thing with the horror genre specifically because there are a lot of 
diamond in the rough type movies in the Mm -hmm. horror genre there are a lot of low budget thrown together like we have an idea we're gonna run with it type of stories in the horror genre and there are fewer in other genres i feel like it just that's anecdotal i have no data on that but that's it feels (laughs) like it it might also be because that's the main genre you watch so <laughs> you do watch a lot of film in general though but i, do. I mean i do yeah horror may sure. be the number one might be might be somebody do a study on that one of you must be some kind of social scientist who would do such a thing a film studies major i don't know who would do that economists i don't know it's an interdisciplinary endeavor Anyway, <laughs> let us know. And let us know. Now, to Irwin's credit, I'm just going to call him Irwin because I'm still afraid I'm saying his last name wrong. To Irwin's credit, I am of the opinion that the single most brilliant decision behind this film was setting it on Halloween. Yeah. Because what that allowed Carpenter to do was it allowed him to have Michael Myers walk around Haddonfield in broad fucking daylight and no one batted an eye because he was in a costume. Exactly. It was just a costume, right? The costume, which of course, as everyone knows, this is, I'm, you know, this is a, this is a fact that barely needs stating, but the costume, of course, the mask is a William Shatner mask that they painted white from a local Halloween store, which was also a brilliant decision because... First of all, it just would have looked ridiculous if it looked like William Shatner. I yeah, like Captain Kirk with a knife. Um, <laughs> but also remember, they like they they talk about him as the boogeyman in the in the script. He is actually called the Shape until Laurie pulls his mask off at the end of the movie, right? So it it is it is a face onto which you can project anything, like your worst nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he does he he walks around. There are screaming teenage girls running down the street being followed by a guy in a mask and people are largely unbothered by this if anything they just seem mildly annoyed that like oh the kids are acting out because it's halloween like oh okay i have to so this is a not necessarily a problem but like a pet peeve a pet yes a pet peeve but like i understand why it was a thing so like i kind of know what you're gonna say but say it anyway um yep about how she was running, uh, she ran up to a house and, mm-hmm. like, knocked on the door and was screaming, help me, like, um, like screaming bloody murder. Right. A- actually actively being attacked, and... They still didn't open the door? They didn't at all come to the door. Right. That they just assumed it was... But remember, this was the 70s. This was the 70s. people used to set children on fire. <laughs> I... That's not true. Why? <laughs> Why are we setting children on fire? Everything was flammable. It was in the seventies. Everything was fucking flammable. Everything. Everything. There was so much polyester. <laughs> polyester everywhere. Everywhere. Um, but that is. I mean, I. I actually. I feel like that is a critique of pretty much any teen slasher movie. Is mm-hmm. like, I can tell you, when I was a teenager, my mother had a had a a, a much better idea about where the fuck I was and what the fuck I was doing than these kids' parents ever do. Like, where the fuck are the parents? The, this movie goes on all night, right? Like, it's yep. it's the middle of the night by the time they're done. And still, the only parent we see is Sheriff Brackett. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's, That's all you it. get. You get, like, I, I think that... Well, I guess you see Lori's dad at the very beginning as he drives to work. Yeah. When he's like, oh, drop a key off at the Myers house. And then... He disappears and yeah. you don't see him for the rest of the movie. Like, I think she yells to her mother, but like, why aren't her parents? Well, I guess she's not at home, but. I mean, even while she is at home, like her parents are just not anywhere to be seen. Right. Like, you're not going to call your kid to like check on her when it's like 1130 p.m. Like these these teenage girls are just like shuffling children around the neighborhood and and no one seems to mind. I don't know. But again, it was a different time. It was so a different maybe, time. You know, children were much more free range back then. So and I mean, also my mother was, you know. Well, I mean, I feel like at that time, like, afraid I was going to get murdered by a well, psychotic killer like well, Michael Myers. So, like, 
happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I feel like this kind of jump started in a way, like acknowledging that this is in a way a thing. I think that this era definitely did. Yes. Like maybe not the horror movie specifically. No, I would, no, no, no. But right. yeah, this era Absolutely. itself. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so like, I mean, you know, as, being a kid of the 90s, like the biggest thing for me was like, I had to come in when the streetlight came on. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like my mom did want to know where I was. Right. I was generally like all of my friends, all of my close friends lived on the same street that I lived on. Mm-hmm. I was in one of their houses. She knew where we, she could go right. if she needed to find mm-hmm. me. But if you be... weren't literally in the middle of the street. Which is usually where I was. With all the other kids where she could just look out the window and see you. Yeah, where I'm standing in the middle of the road, throwing mud into the air and letting it land on my head. That was actually a thing that I did one day. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. If it does, if that doesn't show... That is Sean Reedy. That... Like if that like if that didn't set up the expectations to the human that I would eventually grow into, the human adult that I would grow into. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I have to specify human, but we're gonna do it anyway. We're totally um, human. We are human, and don't you question it? It's totally something humans would say. Anyway, this, this isn't a normal human conversation. Um, but I absolutely did that as a child. But like she, you know, you could look out the window and see that we're in the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, it was not living on a busy road. We were on a side road. Like there were, there was right. not normal so traffic. Were we. yeah. yeah. Well, and to be honest, most of the, na- at least in the summer, most of the neighborhood was in our backyard in the swimming pool. So she knew exactly where we were. Well, and that we was another there. thing. I, so I lived in a, like a mobile home park. Mm. Um, and it was like, you had like one main road and right. then side streets off each side, off, mm-hmm. off of either side of it. And then, so if I wasn't in the road mm-hmm. and if I wasn't at a friend's house, we were at the community pool. Right. In our trailer park. Right. So, it's not like you were going to go very far. I'm around. Right. But at the same point, I could go there and then just be there without her being nearby. Right. Which seems impossible now. I mean, now it's like you are a planet and your parent hovers around you. Right. Yeah. It's like if, if you're not within 50 feet of the child, then... All hell breaks loose. You're going to get arrested. Um. And that was in the 90s, right? Like, imagine then 20 years before that. Exactly. That's... Um, when... But it is true that this was the era... Like, there was... Like I said, there was this sort of idealism that had died. And even though bad things have always happened, serial killers have always existed, mm-hmm. people just became much more aware of them in the 1970s, right? Like I said, 1978 was the year that Ted Bundy was finally captured for the last time. Right. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, Jesus, Ed Kemper. These people were around in the 1970s and they were killing machines and they were killing machines who killed without a reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a profound influence on the films that were made in the 70s and on the slasher genre in general. Like, I don't think that the slasher genre could have existed before the 70s. Mm -hmm. A, because the studios wouldn't have let it happen. But also because people wouldn't have related to it. Like, the scariest thing about Michael Myers is that he is unstoppable and that you don't know why. You can't reason with him because there isn't a reason. No. He is just a killing machine. So, and I think that that was something that really resonated with people given the time in which it was made. Um, And I do think that there was a sort of like overall sort of cultural innocence lost. And that was the, the sort of start of like, hey, maybe we should know where the kids are because there were also several high-profile cases right around the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, where, you know, children disappeared. You know, Eaton Platts, I think, was 1979. Adam Walsh was 1981. And there's, like, even with everything going on, in the, I mean, I know that it's not, like, people in this in the town aren't aware of it until... Afterwards. After, after the fact. Um... 
I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they don't even announce that Michael Myers has escaped in this film. No, they don't. In fact, uh, I I believe that there is a conversation between Loomis and Brackett where Loomis is like, do not tell people because they will panic. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, I I get the thought process, but in a way not helpful. Yeah, no, the whole like not telling people the truth because they'll panic thing never actually works. No. It always backfires in every movie where they do that and in most real life situations where they do that. It backfires. Don't do it. Just tell the truth. Can we talk real quickly about how horrifying it is actually that um, Annie's father is the sheriff and that she's one of the people killed? Like, do you ever think about that? They don't show it, obviously, in the movie. But, like, at some point, they're going to find their way. Lori's going to be like, there are dead bodies in that house. And Brackett, being the sheriff, is going to have to go into that house and see that his daughter is one of them. Which is, like, not really ever addressed, but well, horrifying. They actually do address it in the second one. Do they? They do. So so it actually, I remember the scene, it was right after they were chasing who they thought was Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Which. I mean. That scene. Oh. Anyways, so right after they think that they um, got him. Mm-hmm. Uh, another police officer ends up coming up, mm-hmm. um, whose name I also cannot remember. I right mean, now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, but he ends up, uh, coming up to... Bracket. Loomis. He... Bracket. Bracket. Loomis is the... Is doctor. The doctor, yeah. So he comes up to, um, Bracket freaking out because his daughter was one of the ones that was killed. His is in Bracket. Right. Um, and so he basically identifies her at the scene. They do pull her out of the house. Right. She's on a stretcher when he identifies her. But, right. um, cause I know the whole thing was like, he's like, I need to go. I need to talk to my wife about this, which why the other officer just let him drive home alone and didn't make sure that he got home safe because he literally just witnessed his dead like he right. just, he just he, identified he, his dead daughter like yeah I, 70s it's man. the 70s it's the 70s <laughs> like that could be any any sort of what the fuck moment in this movie can probably be attributed to the fact that it was the 70s yeah um but no he he did identify his daughter afterwards right okay in part two i didn't remember that part mm-hmm. by that same token in fairness to the second movie as soon as they found out that his daughter was one of the victims, they would have pulled him off the case. Mm-hmm. So, like, him being like, oh, I have to go talk to my wife. Like, they would have been like, yeah, go. Because yeah. this, you are officially a conflict of interest and you cannot be here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I believe that they said, like, go, take the night, take the day off. Like, mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was probably a, a scene that you wouldn't remember because it happened immediately after the fact that the police officer that happened to show up Mm-hmm. Um, had just crashed basically through the man that they thought was my, let me rephrase that through the child, mm. the young adult right. who they thought was Michael Myers mm-hmm. hit the child and ran into a van, which exploded and immediately set the child on fire. Mm. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, mm-hmm. Immediately left the scene. (laughs) (laughs) No incident report. Nothing. 1978. Well, no, you know why? Because, and we can talk about this in in subsequent episodes, but, you know, it it would be a really fun comparison to talk about Halloween versus Halloween 2, because Halloween was made before Friday the 13th, and Halloween 2 was made after. And I think that a lot of the differences between the two movies can be explained yeah. by that. Yeah. No, I could see it. Right. Oh, I can't wait to talk about Halloween too. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to talk about Friday the 13th. That's coming up. <sighs> On Friday the 13th. Obviously. I mean, if it's going to be on a day. <laughs> what if we just <laughs> made it like the 20th? We're going to make it Friday the 7th. <laughs> 
But yeah, no. Basically, yes, it was addressed in the second film. In the second film. Yeah, there were a lot of things. I think we talked about this, that there isn't... The whole backstory of Laurie and Michael being brother and sister is never mentioned in the first film. No, not even a little bit. It is never mentioned. Like... So I feel like that might have been kind of retconned in, right, with the second film, because one would imagine that Loomis would mention it or that if they knew that Lori was his sister, that they would go look for her immediately, given that he is a family annihilator, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you remember why they didn't mention it, though? Is there a reason given why they didn't Mm -hmm. mention it in the second one? No. So this is very helpful because I literally just watched this movie. He did. Two days ago. Um, It's been a while since I've seen it. So the reason that they didn't mention it is because um, the... So she was born two years before her sister was killed. Right. Um, The family ended up giving her up for adoption. Fair. Her parents that adopted her Mm -hmm. decided no one should know the fact that she is related to him. And they made them hide the file that any, that had any information that included the fact that she was related. So I don't feel like they would have that power. (laughs) Supposedly they did. I don't think so. And, um, and (laughs) because of that, well, because, because Loomis was like, I've read every single documentation that is on Michael Myers. So it was the journalist that was with him in the car. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why it's also weird, because why does the journalist know this? But he doesn't. Um, right. But uh, there was the... So that was the whole thing is that she was like, yeah, there's this whole file that's hidden and she is actually his sister. <laughs> it's plot exposition. It has to go somewhere. I mean... I, I'm... They got to throw in that twist. The explanation of it is... A little muddy, but right. that's fine. Which is hilarious because I, I feel like in every movie where the original made a point of there being no reason in the sequels. They always have to make a point. <laughs> they try to find reasons, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for example, uh, another movie we're going to do soon, Night of the Living Dead, right? Uh, Night of the Living Dead, in the original, there is no explanation given to as to why there are suddenly zombies. Right. None. Like, they just walk over the hill and there they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole elaborate backstory that is, is created in, in subsequent films. The whole, like, a whole sort of mythology, really, that's, that's built around it. But, and the same thing here. Like, there are, there are uh, attempts as, and I would I would argue, especially in the Rob Zombie remakes, mm-hmm. um, but there are attempts to give him reasons when the whole point of the first one <laughs> is that he was just a killing machine. Yeah. He, he was just evil. On that same note, I think that that speaks to our evolving perceptions of serial murderers Mm -hmm. right because in the 70s the idea that there might be reasons or there might be explanations or there might be a way to understand these people was a very new concept i mean 77 78 is when john e douglas was you know traveling around the country uh interviewing serial killers trying to build profiles for the first time Mm -hmm. and where the like behavioral analysis unit Came, well, I think it was behavioral science unit at the time, but whatever. Uh, behavioral analysis. Well, the BAU <laughs> came to be. Um. Well, and I think that's what made it even more effective is that they're like there is there like you saying like there is literally no reason behind it. He right. is just evil. Yes. He is straight from hell. Mm-hmm. It, there. There is nothing in his eyes. No. Like, Loomis is like, I've worked with him for... 15 years. 15 years. There's nothing there. Keep him locked up. He will just keep killing. Mm -hmm. And he was right. 
then he will, even after you shoot him six times and stab him with a knitting needle. And I think a knife as well. Throw him out a two-story window, set him on fire. What else have they done to that dude over the years? Over the years? Over the years. Oh, God. There's been many, many I things. Mean, I mean, he, there are numerous yeah. bullets. There are definitely numerous objects shoved into him. At various points in his body. Mm-hmm. He's been set on fire also numerous times. Numerous times. Like, at the end of the second one, and then at least at the end of the most recent one. I don't yeah. know if there are others. I don't remember others, but I definitely those two. Mm-hmm. At the end of H2O, she chopped his goddamn head off. <laughs> she fucking did, didn't she? She chopped his head off, and, and then in the next one, they were like, oh, nope, he had put his mask on somebody else. It wasn't really him. Ha, ha, ha. They're like, fuck you. Fucking serious. <laughs> Are you serious right now? They're like, hey, you want to make another? <laughs> you want to make another? Always. They always want to make another one. They can't stop. Oh. You cannot stop. And I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm okay with it too. My favorite thing, I think, I think, I mean, you and I have certainly talked about this. My absolutely favorite thing about this franchise is that every 20 years, they just erase the entire franchise. Yeah, every fucking time. <laughs> like, H2O is a direct sequel to the original. Yeah. And they cut out all of the stuff about, and in all fairness, like, the the Halloween movies that were made in the 80s. You know, if you wanted to cut them out, I'm fine. But... <laughs> Well, like, four, five, and six were not fantastic. But, uh, so H2O just completely ignored that, right? Mm -hmm. Laurie Strode has had three different children, all of whom were only children. (laughs) (laughs) Because there was a daughter who, like, ended up killing people, like Michael, right? Right. And then that was in, like, four, five, six, like, the 80s Halloween Mm -hmm. movies. And then there was the teenage son in H2O. And then in the most recent one... She has an adult daughter, which is not the daughter from the 80s. Like, it's a completely different daughter. Who also has a daughter. Who also has a daughter. Completely different circumstances. Completely Mm. different child. But an only child. So what is What even is reality anymore, guys? (laughs) We don't need that. We don't need that. (laughs) We don't need none of that. We have knives. We have knives, and we will stab that reality away. Um... What so speaking of H two O because I know that we talked about that a little bit that that we was did. actually the first Halloween movie that I ever watched was mm-hmm. Halloween H two O because you're an infant because I was an infant it it I feel like it just come out recently too um, it came out in ninety eight so you were seven yeah that's about right I you probably saw when it when I was like yeah I was probably like eight maybe I was eight right maybe nine. You probably saw it on like home video or TV or something. So it was was far enough after the release for that. Yeah, I can. So I actually, I watched it at my friend Crystal's house. Her Mm -hmm. brothers were watching it. Um, There was no adult supervision. That was definitely clear in that house. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) No tea, no shade. Um, But (laughs) if you're listening, um, I mean, because we watched that and then immediately afterwards we watched seven. Oh, that's a rough. I was nine. Yeah. And I watched Halloween H2O mm-hmm. and then Seven. That was a real interesting one. Um, but yeah, so that was the first Halloween movie that I have ever seen. And I remember hearing about Michael Myers like here and there, but I was I was very young, so I didn't really know much about it. And then I watched that movie and I'm like, oh, oh, that's what it is. Right. But it is hilarious that you watched H2O because H2O is so heavily dependent on knowing the first one or having seen the first one. Um, yeah, I had no backstory at all. I was like, oh, this is a horror movie. Game on. (laughs) Right. I mean, give me more. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was actually probably the first rated R movie that I ever watched. Right. Makes sense. Um. I mean, I guess that they do explain it to the point that you probably still understood what was happening in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I got it. Like, there was a killer. They were chasing him. Mm-hmm. Or he- Speaking of Frankenstein Friday, this keeps coming up. Look at us. <laughs> the whole, like, subplot of that, the whole sort of, like, conceptual subplot of H2O is about how, like, Laurie Strode's own personal monster is Michael Myers. And they have this whole thing of her in the school teaching Frankenstein and all about slaying the monster and your own personal monster. Mm-hmm. And then she cuts his head off and then it's not really him apparently but that was such a great moment which you're just like Argh! 
I yeah. should, oh my god. Heck it was, fly off and you were like, yes! <laughs> it was so satisfying. Oh my god. I read in one article that there are, you know, people talk about this film being misogynistic, which I, like, we can, like, fair. Fair and valid. Yeah, absolutely but fair and valid. this particular reason was that people identify with the killer. And I'm like, wait, who identifies with the killer? Like, I don't... Maybe I'm not... Right? Like, <laughs> I'm like Lori fucking Strode all day. I yeah. mean, like, you are rooting for her. You're not rooting for Michael. <laughs> maybe maybe we're... But that was, that was the argument that I read. Straight men, are you doing this? Guys. Listen. Stop Lit. it. It's not okay. Not okay. He's not the one. I mean, he's he's the killer, but he's not the one. He's not the one you should be identifying with. So, so one thing that I I really appreciate about this movie, and I would say the sequel too, but mm-hmm. like, um, just comparing this to like the more modern films, like mm-hmm. I would say like H two O. Basically, H2O on, Mm -hmm. H2O on. Right. Is that, like, they really focus on the stalker aspect of him. Like, they, in in a, in a cinema, in in a cinema, cinematic? Am I saying the right word? Do you mean? Like, in a, like, like his point of view. The staging. Yeah. The staging, the cinematography? Yes. Like, the cinematography, like, so... Like they within the film, they they often used his point of view, mm-hmm. and including at the beginning. Including at the beginning, mm-hmm. like it it really put you in his shoes, literally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they really didn't do that much with any of the recent ones. Right. Too much, at least. They did uh, like a slight. It, it was almost like instead of it being a part of the film in like the 2018 version, it was mm-hmm. more of like an homage when he walked up to one of the houses mm-hmm. that he ended up breaking into and, right. you know, slicing a woman's throat. Right. Um, but I feel like that's almost like a miss in the new ones that I really appreciate from the originals. Like, I really appreciate the fact that like you, you, get to experience him a little bit more closely mm-hmm. well and maybe that i mean maybe that is why some have talked about identifying with the killer but i would argue that like yes slashers are misogynistic full yeah. stop slashers yeah. are misogynistic they 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 uh are built upon violence against women mm-hmm. like let's just say that clear Clear cut. We understand that. We agree with it Mm -hmm. for sure. However, I would argue that in this particular instance, if you are identifying with the killer in those moments where you are looking through his eyes, you're not supposed to like it. Right? Carpenter put that in, I feel, to make you uncomfortable. Right? Because part of the theme of this movie is the darkness underlying a seemingly perfect small town, Uh right? So there is a kind of, and it's not like, I mean, Carpenter did this over and over again, right? There is a sort of indictment of society at large, right? So when he puts you in Michael Myers' shoes, I, I don't think it's like, oh, isn't this cool? I think it's supposed to be like, isn't this gross? Right? Like, don't you feel bad? <laughs> but and again, maybe not everyone experiences it that way. But I, I know I did. I appreciated I did. it. Right. In the, like, cinematic aspect of it. Oh, for sure. I mean, there is a reason that Carpenter's a legend. Like, the direction in this movie is phenomenal. Right? Like, um... You know, even that opening sequence when he's the little boy and he kills his sister. And mm-hmm. you don't actually entirely know that he's a little boy mm-hmm. when he's doing it. No, you don't. You don't right? you, you don't really know it until... 
after you see him outside and he takes off his mask. Right. Like the sister says Michael's around somewhere and then she yells at him when he walks up. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing, there's nothing about it that, I guess you see his hand reach for the mask. And you do see his hand wrapped around the knife. You do. So I suppose you understand that like the hand is little, but I I do feel like there's still a moment of reveal when they pull that mask off and it's a six-year-old. Yes. For sure. Um, but like the, the, the point of view through that mask mm-hmm. as he is stabbing the sister in a, in a clear and acknowledged by Carpenter homage to Psycho. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of course he, there were plenty of homages to, um, Hitchcock in this movie, Sam Loomis, Tommy Doyle. Uh, I think also Lindsay Wallace were all Hitchcock characters. Um, and, oh my gosh, here's a fun fact. Michael Myers was the name of the man who ran the distribution company that handled the distribution of Assault on Precinct 13 in England. That is awesome. (laughs) So, like, what? So they were just like, hey, you're a cool guy. Here's a killer. So, but anyway, that has nothing to do with the cinematography. Yeah. It's just, you know, more more fun facts. You know, I'm all about the fun facts. We're here for all the fun facts. We're here for all the fun facts. You know, I didn't realize, um, like, because I know that obviously uh, Deborah Hill, you know, and well, of course, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were credited for all of the sequels. For writing the characters, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know why I didn't realize this, but she was actually one of the writers of the Rob Zombie remake. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that either. Yep. As well as the remake of The Fog. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Which, I mean, that makes sense. She produced a lot of his films. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know exactly how many she co-wrote or wrote, but she, she produced a lot of his films. I mean, she she's. I mean, she produced thirty two movies, so she's got a, a pretty decent. Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's almost I mean, like people should talk about her more. Hmm. Not bitter at all. Not I mean, bitter at all. It's reasonably so. Mm-hmm. So, since we're talking about Michael Myers as a boogeyman. I think where that comes through the strongest is actually in the fact that he is unstoppable. Yes. Right. He, he does even in the first movie. I mean, obviously like it starts to get ridiculous as the films go on. Mm -hmm. Right. Not to the, not to the like level of say how ridiculous it is that Jason keeps coming back, but, but still a ridiculous level. But still a ridiculous level because he is supposed to be just a plain old human. Yes. Character wise. Right. But conceptually, he is evil itself, mm-hmm. right? He is a killing machine, and he is unstoppable. And I feel like that doesn't really come through until the he's, very, very end of yes. the film. Until he's with Laurie. Yes. Because Laurie actually fights him off successfully. Yes. There's no one else that's actually been able to attack him back. Right, because he, throughout this he film. sneaks up on them. But Laurie mm-hmm. sees him coming, mm-hmm. right? Um but he is this this just thing, right? I mean, like I said, they call him the shape mm-hmm. in the script, right? He is just this, and in the credits, actually, he's credited as the shape. Um, he is just this thing, and he doesn't have to run. He's just walking. He is slow. He is methodical, and you cannot get away from him. And it doesn't matter what you do to him, he is going to keep coming. Mm-hmm. Because he is evil personified right so you have the end of the film i mean laurie what laurie i think she hits him over the head with something she stabs him in the eye with a knitting needle i'm pretty sure that she manages to slice his arm i believe with the knife at some point or maybe he slices her arm he slices, he her, slices arm. Her, her arm i feel like the knife goes into his body at some point uh i believe that she oh, does no, the hanger it's the hanger. Okay, I'm sorry. I was wrong. In the closet, yes. She sticks the hanger in his eye. She sticks the knitting needle in his fucking neck. Neck. Yep. Luma shoots him like six times. 
Exactly six times. And he falls out of a second story window. And... Then he's gone. He's just gone. He's just gone. So, you know, I think that that was... I think that that's a brilliant moment. Whether or not they were planning for a sequel. And because another thing we can talk about is sequels weren't exactly a thing until the late 70s. Like, really until, like, The Godfather and Star Wars and Halloween. Like, the beginning of franchises, Mm -hmm. there were not sequels before this era. No. And I think that that probably has something to do with the fact that, you know, there weren't, like, there wasn't, like, home video before this era. And there wasn't as much TV before this era. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, the ways in which you could continue to watch the original movie so that you knew, so that you could, like, catch up, you know, or refresh for the sequel. Um, But it really, it wasn't even really a thought there were lots of remakes oh there are plenty lots of remakes in like the studio era Mm -hmm. they would like remake a film three or four times they gave no fucks but that's because like it would go to the theater and then it'd be gone right so if you wanted to see that story again you'd have to make the film again there weren't really sequels until the 70s right well and and even talking about star wars Mm -hmm. star wars was not planned there was no plan to have a sequel after that Mm -hmm. initially it was just that was the film and that was it Right. I mean, the ending's pretty definitive. Yeah. But then, you know, you end up getting such critical acclaim from this and there's so many different, like, you make so much money off of this film. I mean, it's the money. It's the money. We can pretend that it's, like, about the art, but it's about the money. It's about the money. (laughs) (laughs) Joke's on you. Um, But no, I mean, that movie made so much money that they're like, okay, we're going to make more. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Which is why they keep making more. Exactly. They just cannot stop because they keep making money. And they know the next one will make money, even if it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Even if it is absolute shit. Nonsense. Even if it is Halloween fucking six, which we will talk about at some point, but holy hell. (laughs) I mean, if there's one good thing from that one, it's Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. I feel um, like you are a true Halloween fan if you know that Paul Rudd was in a Halloween movie, for sure. And if, I mean, if you didn't know that. Now you know. Now you fucking know. <laughs> Paul Rudd was in Halloween 6. He played Tommy Doyle. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how the movie ends. And, and I mean, he's gone and Lori's talking about the boogeyman. Right. Because that was the first time that she actually referenced him, I believe, as the boogeyman. That's the first time she says it. Yes. Yeah. It's been refer. It was referenced numerous right. times. Tommy through- said it over and over, but yes. the first time that Lori calls him that is after he's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um. So happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh. So one thing that I want to talk about really quick before we wrap up. We are starting a club. Because why the fuck not? Because why the fuck not? Um, we would be extremely grateful if you would throw some support our way. Obviously, you know, we humbly ask for anything that you would be willing to uh, do if you join Fright Club. That's what we're calling it. We're calling it Fright Club. Because in case you hadn't noticed, we are ridiculous. Um, and Katie, I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. What is... The first rule of Fright Club? The first rule of Fright Club is screaming is always a tactical error. Shut up. (laughs) Shut your goddamn mouth. The only person who's going to hear you is the bad guy. That's it. Shut up. Um, So, Fright Club. uh, You will absolutely get a t-shirt. We know that much if you join Fright Club. We're going to have bonus episodes if you join Fright Club. Um, Watch-alongs and bloopers and just a lot of uh bonus content and then we would like to hear from you like what is it that you would like to see as part of a sort of community involving this podcast if anything i mean because let's be real you're probably you've probably listened to a handful of podcasts at this point Mm -hmm. so you already know what maybe other podcasts offer or what you would like to see from other podcasts, mm-hmm. let us know what you'd like to see from us. Absolutely. Like, what would make it worth your while to support us in that way? I mean, if it's anything from, like you said, Katie, us 
you know, doing a watch along mm-hmm. to um, Katie throwing something in my face. I don't care. <laughs> sure. One hundred percent on board for that one. Uh, so let us know, and we will we will get that set up, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week we are talking about the witches, oh, which is very exciting. We are I'm going so to be talking excited. about both the nineteen ninety. Uh, Angelica Houston vehicle and the uh, more recent readaptation of of the novel with so. the lovely Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway, based on my heart. I mean, there it is. There it is. Here we are. Here we are. So, gays and ghouls. Next Friday night, you'll be in for a fright. And until then, sleep tight. <laughs>